Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. When you or someone you know is having a hard time mentally dealing with things, the simple realisation that you're not alone can make a huge difference to how you deal with it. This is the foundation of lived experience, to share stories, extend empathy and help shape the outcome for others in similar situations. Our guest for this week is Vanessa Kite, a proud Maori woman uh, and one of the 2021 recipients of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association study grants. As a registered nurse, Vanessa is passionate about helping to improve the quality of life for others, with plans in place to become a credentialed mental health nurse with her studies. From incidents of physical and sexual abuse to substance dependency, Vanessa has overcome a wealth of hardship to get to where she is today and joins me to tell her story. Welcome listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode of our podcast. One of the things that gives us great satisfaction uh, with this channel is to be able to share stories from people with lived experience uh, and incredible stories at that. It, it's such, uh, it takes a lot of courage for people to be able to come on the show and, sh- and share their story with the view of helping others and, and as a result of their experience to be able to come forward and discuss it in a safe way and, but then also as a result of that devastating experience, what they're doing now as a result of that. And today's episode, uh, it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you Vanessa Kite. Vanessa, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. Vanessa, for those of you who don't know, is one of the two successful applicants um, that applied for a bursary to continue their studies um, in what they're doing. So Vanessa, do you just want to Actually, you know what, let's just touch on what you're studying right now. Okay, at the moment I'm doing a postgraduate certificate in um, mental health, acute mental health nursing, and that is my last lot of um, papers before I can be credentialed. So I'll be a credentialed mental health nurse with yeah. completion. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what, this, like the mental health nurses, uh, you see more and more playing such an important role. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what a, what a career to go down and, and, uh, and we'll get to why you're venturing down that role in a second. But if you don't mind, let's start with your background. You're a proud Kiwi, Maori yes. descent. Let's, yes, let's I'm talk about a, it. Um, a Maori woman. I'm from, I descend from Te Aupodi and Naitakato descent. Uh, that's the top of the North Island, right up the top as far as you can go. And um, I'm an only child, which is quite unique in Māori family. Yeah, because um, they're quite big families, aren't they, typically? huge. Mum's like one of 12, I think. Um, and wow. But I'm the eldest of 63 uh, first cousins. 
Holy dooly. Yeah, I didn't 63. need brothers and sisters. Um, and and so, they, were, they were all around your community, were they? Were yeah, they? we were all brought up together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really close-knit. Um, my grandmother was a very... Um, she was the tower of strength. She was our, our backbone and our whanau. And, um, and she made sure we were all together. It was, it's just in our culture. Pacifica um, and Maori people seem to have that, uh, the you know that whānau, that it's, it's so important, isn't it? And they and you, even though you're not directly brothers and sisters, you're all you're all treated as though you're all one family. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For, yeah. From an outside culture looking in, I mean, it's something that's such a, a great thing to have. It's moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Borrowing clothes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, well, that'd be true. Imagine the hand-me-downs, though. Oh, yeah. Holy dooly. Well, I was the oldest. <laughs> oh, yeah. got my stuff. Oh, there you go. So you were the fashion setter. <laughs> I was. I was. <laughs> so single child. Um. Yep, I was brought up by my grandmother, which isn't unusual um, for the gra- uh, first muko, first grandchild to be brought up by the grandmother. And um, my mum was 16 when she had me, so she had to work really hard. It was the 70s. Um, yeah. You know, Māori family, and we were born and bred in South Auckland, in the hood there, Ōtara. So we just all worked together. It takes a village to raise a child, and that's how, how our whānau went. And so I was brought up with a lot of my uncles before all the other cousins came along. Um, all my mum's siblings were more like brothers and sisters to me, yeah. Yeah, right. Mm. And what was the 70s in, in New Zealand? Was it, it's, I mean, pretty dangerous, was it, at times? Was it safe? I don't remember it ever being dangerous because it was home. Yeah. Um, I think it was more people outside of the suburb that described our, our hood as okay. dangerous. Yeah, but when you're part of something, you don't see the danger. Yeah. You know, when you're surrounded by family. Um, and it was a new area. People were moving in from... In the countries, a lot of Māori were moving in from the country to Auckland for work. And it was a time where there wasn't very many half-caste children. Mm. So I was spoiled rotten. I was born white with red hair. and you know. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, my grandmother just spoiled me, showing me off like a toy prize, you know. Wow. Yeah, that no, was cool. So, so you moved to South Auckland when that your family's from the northern part. Yes. But then you moved, you moved to South Auckland. Yeah, my grandmother moved down as a youngster for work. Okay. So for work, yeah. Was it tough, you know, finding work at um, in Auckland at that age? Or like? I don't I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. There was the meat works that was the main industry in South Auckland. So just about everyone worked there. Mum was a postie in the morning and worked at the bar in the evenings. You know, just real hard workers yeah, in our family. Multiple jobs. Yeah, yep, had to. Yeah. Tell us of the role that your grandmother played. In raising you? She taught us um, respect, first and foremost. Hard working, because my grandfather was a merchant seaman, so he'd be away for two, three months at a time, and then he was home for a couple of weeks and off again. So she was pretty much a solo mum with all of her kids and whatnot. So she, we had no choice. We didn't see any other way of living other than you work hard. And you don't cry for money. I remember that one. I've got a good boot up the bum. I cried for money once. Um, you don't cry for money, kiddo. <laughs> you mean you ask for money all the time? Or you s- yeah, I was showing off. Oh. Because my neighbours weren't as... They didn't have a job. And so Nana, um, you know, she had a little bit of money. And I was saying, give some money. I'm going to shout everyone nice blocks and all this. And she said, no. 
And so I started crying like a brat and she gave me a good boot up the bum. Don't wow. you bloody cry for yeah. money, girl. You get out there and you earn your own. Earn your buck. So I didn't do that one again. <laughs> yeah, didn't do that one again. That's a good lesson. Yeah, yeah. She was a tough woman. She was good. And, and what was it like growing up there in South Auckland? It was awesome. My best memories. Absolutely. Right up until 12, I wanted for nothing. We played out on the streets. You know, it was the whole... You'd hear the mums yelling out before the street lights came in. You know, everyone knew everyone, and it, it was it was good. It was calm. Yeah, yeah, it was calm. It was nice. Were your cousins? Were they all down there as well, or they'll back up, still back up in the North Island? No, yeah. they all lived in Auckland with their parents. Okay. Yeah, it's just so you still had a lot of Nana. support. Yeah, yeah, we were always you're never alone. Mm. You're never alone. Mm. Your grandmother, obviously, horrific. What happened? Um, yeah, so my nana's name is Waiake Naramotuheka. And, um, and yeah, when I was 12, she, um, she was hit by a drink, drunk driver and she passed away. And um, that was, yeah, that was shocking. That still affects all of our family now. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it's a rough one. Yeah, uh, especially considering the role that she was playing with you as far as, you know, looking after you and... Yeah, Being and all of our culture, everything cultural, we learnt from her. So at home, you know, she spoke the language all the time because she was brought up in a time where they were punished at school for speaking te reo Māori. Is that and right? Yeah, so, you know, to move to Auckland and it, it wasn't so easy to speak our language, you know, you yeah. were kind of judged um yeah. it just wasn't done like they were stopping it in schools for goodness sake and so i'd al always have my other nannies over and all you could hear was our language all the time it was just sort of kept in our home and she taught us tikanga maori which is the ways of our people and all of this sort of thing so when she went that went yeah it, it just stopped yeah so lucky though to get that cultural uh, exposure i mean you see where new zealand is doing a pretty good job of that at the moment, you know, incorporating the languages back in the schools and doing all that now. But, I mean, back then, I couldn't imagine what that would have been like not to be able to speak that. Yeah, yeah, it was very real. And right through to all my mum's generation, they stopped having Māori names. And so because there was a belief from my grandmother at that time, having a Māori name, you'd go nowhere. Disadvantage. Yeah, you'd go nowhere. So we had the real English, like Elaine and... Rhonda and Rita and uh -huh. Mary, you know, all these types of names. And then as it got called to Kōrero again, Kōrero was speak, it got, you know, it started coming back. My Auntie Mary is now Auntie Mary. <laughs> <You know, laughs> so it was cool then. But at the time, no, we all had very English names and my grandfather was English also. Yeah. Mm. And, and so from a young age, you had to begin fending for yourself. I mean, or did were you then when your grandmother passed? Mm -hmm. I spent a couple of years with my mum. Okay. But I, I think you know, when something like that happens and your world's rocked like that, I didn't actually give a shit. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't going to go and stay with anyone. No one knew me better than my grandmother, and I just started to make my way in the world. Yes. Were you living on the streets? Were you just going from house to house? Were um, you not at 14. At 15, I went to Sydney. And my father was living there at the time. 
and bless him, he's passed away too. Oh, um, he was. Um, I used to brag about my dad that he was a bank robber because he was. Um, <laughs> he was a heroin addict in Sydney, yeah. and that's why him and my mother parted ways because she's just absolutely. I don't even know how she ended up with him. They so black and white, you know. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, love stories. So I went to go and live with him, and that's where I ended up on the streets there in um, Kings Cross. I lived in the Sydney City Mission. There, they were, they were fantastic. Got uh, me my first job at KFC. Oh wow! Yeah, they, they, were good. they were good. So, how long did you be? Were you able to spend with your dad growing up? Was it was it just a couple of months before you moved out? Or um, no, it was two weeks. Okay. But I didn't know that he was. I always went there for school holidays, and he was always so much fun. I, I wasn't till later I realised he was high as a kite. <laughs> I just thought, wow, he colours in with me. He wants to talk to me till three in the morning. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was really good fun. And he was, and he was. So, so this time when I went over at 15, I, yeah, he was coming down and we had an argument and I grabbed a suitcase and just went walking. But I didn't realise I was in the middle of King's Cross. I didn't know what King's Cross was. Yeah. And this little kid I had, yeah. I think I had $2 something and I saw a taxi and I asked them, you know, to take me to the police station and I showed him my coins and he just laughed at me and took off and I was like, what? He just let you go? Yeah, it wasn't enough. Yeah. Did you ever see him again, father? No, he died probably about three or four years later. Okay. Mm. That's, that's sad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But when you left then and you walked out, mm-hmm. did you randomly just find the mission? By coincidence? How did you How did you end no, up? No, and such is my life, these really strange things would happen. There was, um, one of the apartments was on fire and everyone had been evacuated from this apartment. So I'm sort of, I saw the flashing lights and I thought, okay, there's help. Um, went walking down there with my suitcase and one of the ladies that had come out just came up to me and said, what are you doing? Walking around here, we were by the wall, um, which if you know the cross is not the safest place. For a 14, 15 year old, no you know? and she said, You don't belong here. And then she, police officer, who then took me to the Sydney City Mission. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that lucky? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you think back to that incident, this thing, that sliding doors moment? I mean, just what oh, yeah. could have been? All the time. Yeah, all the time. So you went to the mission and you sought mm. shelter, yep. food, uh, and they got you your first job? Uh, yeah. So the first day I started was a new social worker who wasn't meant to be taking us to job interviews but he took me and I had to meet him down the road and this sort of carry on and I got the job at KFC like you know with Nana's upbringing and and putting those um, tools in place for us I needed money I needed money and I needed this job Um, so I yeah I applied for KFC got that one you weren't obviously at school then school was done no I thought I knew it all yeah, we're, we're all a bit guilty yeah. of that. <laughs> okay, so you're out there, you'd finally got some employment. Mm-hmm. What happened then? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Money. I, I wanted money and I'd, I'd see um, some of the other people that were staying at the mission would come back with just so much money and they were all really wasted on drugs and it looked appealing to me, it, you know. I wanted to be that, even though I knew, you know, I'd listen to them talk about we've just robbed some old woman and, you know, pension days were 
their good days. And in and, and my heart of hearts, it was like, this is so wrong. But I was just a tutu kid. I, I was curious and I, I wanted that. And I started hanging out with them. Mm. Yeah. And so your behaviour took a, a bit of a turn then? Oh, yeah. Everything's a blur from there for a few years. Yeah. For a few years, yeah. Did the drugs, so, stole the money. Theft, yeah. All, all of that skullduggery stuff. Yeah. I did. And keep in mind, I mean, you'd already been subjected to sexual abuse mm. as well mm-hmm. uh, by that age, mm-hmm. which is just unfathomable. Mm. You'd also been raped at gunpoint. That was later. Oh, that was after? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Was that when you I went? Was, I was only about 15 at this stage. Okay. So uh, I've, what I've learned in my career is that, you know, everyone says, oh, the addiction, um, the tra- trauma comes first and then the addiction. With me, it was more the addiction and all that trauma came in through there. Yeah, and lots and lots of it. Yeah. You went back to New Zealand mm-hmm. shortly, uh, was it after a few years in Sydney? Yes. What prompted you to want to go back to New Zealand? Did it just get to a point where you were, it's just enough, it's too much? It was too much, yeah, it was too much. I was a little girl trying to play big girl games. I was really tired, so I ended up reaching out to my family who didn't know any of this was going on and went, get your butt home. <laughs> so I went, I went home. But by then I was, you know, I was already thinking too deep for a young one. I think I was about 17 when I got back. And just the experiences that I'd had then already were already playing on my mind. So they didn't get back their little 17-year-old that they thought I was going to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I don't blame them. I mean, you've been Mm. uh, exposed to things that no one should ever get exposed to, let alone the age that you were. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, I saw a lot. So you went back, your family, uh, you were a bit, you're a different person than the person who left. Yeah, definitely. How did you fit back in? I didn't. Yeah. And I think it took a really, really long time. Like, I'm starting to now and I'm 50. Yeah, I didn't. My role, it's really important, our roles within our whānau and being the eldest muku comes with a role and I couldn't do that. Uh, you know, I was just, I was embarrassed at some of the things, even though no one knew, but I knew what I'd done and I was embarrassed, I felt guilty, all of those heavy words. And I just clammed up, absolutely clammed up. So no one else knew about all the, the, the history with you? Yeah. No, because I was embarrassed. Yeah. You know, why would, the first thing they would have said, why didn't you come home? And I don't know, I don't have the answer for that. Yeah. No. I was so, so you then met your – did you meet your husband then in mm-hmm. New Zealand? Uh, yep, yep. Otara Football Club, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And met him – I was 17, he was 23. And we have three children. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. So you went back to Auckland? South Auckland, Otara. South Auckland? Yep. Yeah. You met your husband, had three kids. Uh-huh. Was, uh, was it mostly a pleasant experience? Mostly. Yeah. Mostly. He was a bit more streetwise than I was, but being that, again, I was a tutu kid, <laughs> he was trying to keep drugs and things away from me, to be honest. Um, but I wanted it. I was seeking that out, having that taste in Sydney. 
Yeah, the urge was quite strong, and I, I didn't know that to go back to the, drugs. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to know more. I wanted not so much more of the same drug, more of that lifestyle. You know, okay. yeah, because that's where you get the fa- fast cash, right? Pretty much, yeah. pretty much, and there's no responsibility. You don't have to answer to anyone. Yeah, and I liked that. Okay, so because you had a taste for it that mm. was appealing to you, yeah. you then wanted to ex- experiment a bit more, still have the mm. lifestyle yeah. that it yeah. came with that. Yeah. Uh, and then and then you had you gave birth to kids together? Yeah, we have three. Paula's 28 now, um, Nathan is 27, and Shanley's 22. Wow. Yeah. Uh, whereabouts are they living at the moment? Two of them are here. They followed me. Okay. And the others in um, Nathan's in New Zealand. How long were you together with your husband for then? Until I was 29. Okay. Uh, and that point you separated? Most definitely, yeah. Yeah, as you know, as the drugs built up, so did the, the side effects of that, the domestic violence, the stalking. We got kidnapped there at one stage for 11 days, <laughs> me and the older three. Um, it was just chaos. It was absolute chaos. It was all yeah. it was all driven by the drugs. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And, and when you had kids, for both of us. Oh, for both of you. Okay, yeah. I was going to say, did when you had kids, did it settle your side of things? Not down? at all. Okay. No, no. My daughter Paula was born um, very small um, because I didn't stop taking drugs when I was pregnant. I thought I would. Um, yeah. No, I didn't. The the urge was just um, the denial was too strong. Yeah. Yeah, the denial. At that point in time in New Zealand, were there support networks? Is there places you could go to get help? Was there any anything like that or, or not? <coughs> you're I aware? don't know. Okay. I didn't wasn't looking for them. I was too busy watching my own back for my own safety. And then if any agencies did get involved, they were the enemy. You know, they're here to take your kids or that yeah. sort of thing, you know, which they probably should have. Um, yeah, I think back, but you know, you're too suspicious of anyone coming and saying that they were going to help you. But there wasn't so much then in the late 90s, and methamphetamines at that stage wasn't really on the scene too much. Okay, yeah, so your kids were growing up in a drug fueled environment. Was that was it tough for them growing up? Were they uh, surviving mm. okay in the, in the meantime? You know, I, I was still working. He was still working. We were functioning to the outside world. Okay. But behind closed doors, we weren't. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, so we'd get the kids to school and and then the, you can only do that for so long. And then it just went to chaos. It went psychotic. It went psychotic. Yeah. Mm. More your partner went psychotic? Yeah. 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 Did that spur you to then to distance yourself? There was stalking... Kidnapping Three and stuff. years of stalking. Um, this is after you'd separated? Yeah, yeah. We only left at night because people could see where we were in the day. So I, I had my dark side bestie um, who's still around now. We'd message her just before we got there so she could lift the garage. We could drive in. It was an operation. <laughs> the garage would go down and then that's where my kids got to play with other kids. If we had children over, well, they didn't have children over because we never knew when he was going to come and it was embarrassing The for the kids in front yeah. of their friends and stuff. So he, we isolated ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, we had to. At that point in time, was getting off the drugs a priority for you or was it something that you were still 
trying to use to didn't even think about getting off the drugs to be honest sam it was just that was the only thing that was getting me up and keeping me going was my best friend the only thing that made me feel good there was no way i was letting it go at that stage because that's the only way that i was surviving yeah what happened then after you guys he went did he go to jail then he went to jail okay yeah he went to jail and that brought us safety it brought us calm we could stop and think and we had moved house so many times. I, I tried to make it sound cool that we're just gypsies. No, we're running yeah. constantly. Then we, I just had to stop. And it was like, where was the last place that I felt safe? And it was with my nana. So we went up to where we're from, where our family Urupa is our cemetery. And I just wanted to be close to nana. And then I moved up north. Back to where your family was from? Yeah, yeah. With your kids? Yep, just the three of them, yeah. Did it settle down for you then? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. It just, because I wasn't dealing with any issues. I was just run, 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 you know. I was in this fight or flight, constant state. And because when you're forever getting attacked from you don't know which way, you can't think straight. You just can't think straight. And then being in the country, it was like, well, shit, I don't know how I make money here. Where are the drugs here? <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So I had to keep that habit going, that hunger going. And I also had to feed these children and and also put up a front for my nanny's hometown, our tribe. You know, everyone knew my grandmother and had fantastic things to say about her because she was fantastic and a very strong member of our tribe. And so I had that in my head all the time, like I cannot shame my my family. Um, so again, I kept secret the issues that were happening for me up there because I didn't want to embarrass them. So did you get a job up there? No, no, there's no work up there. Okay. So I would drive to the nearest town, which was about two and a half hours away, and that was my experiences in the sex industry. Yes. Um, that started when I was 14 and finished when I was in my... Early 40s. About 43, yeah. 44. Yeah, that's been my go-to. Yes. And the amount of um, sexual abuse uh, and stuff that you've had and experienced through that is uh, unfathomable. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole other level. Yeah. yeah. When I try and think about it sometimes, it's like, shit, did that actually happen? You know, because it's been so long and my life has changed so much. Yeah. It's like a completely different person. But hell yeah, it happened. And Vanessa, you also met another partner, is that correct? Yes, yeah. He was from the north? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you had another couple of kids. With I you. had another three. Yep. Um, so Fiturangi is 16, um, Puro Joseph is nine, and Miss Dylan is seven. Wow. Are they based in New Zealand? They are all here with me. Oh, good. Yeah, they wanted to come. Oh, that's great. No, stay there. (laughs) Stay at home. Yeah, they're great kids. Oh, that's great. You then separated from that partner? Yep, after about the same time as my first, um, my husband actually, um, probably about 13 years. Okay. Yeah. And that was drug-related as well, was it? Something it was. Similar? He wasn't that way inclined when I first met him, but I was. Okay. And I think in me sort of sharing sharing my stories about how horrible it can be, all I did was entice him into wanting to do it. It kind of backfired on me. So then started, oh, 
we'll just do a little bit here and there. And then it just, he was a runaway train and I couldn't control him. And he went on his journey to in that world um, and still is to this day. How did you find the New Zealand court system with the kids? I mean, was that something that was mm. hard to go <coughs> through and navigate or was there some challenges? No, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not a silly woman and I, I was very clever and I was able to manipulate the system, basically, Sam. I could see, you know, who could help, who couldn't. I, I had a girlfriend who was studying law at the time and it was like, right, how do we do this? And, and that's how I never lost my children. They're a lot more strict these days, which is good. But at the time, like I said, that they hadn't seen... Like, basically, with my case, I remember the police at one stage in my early 20s were wanting me to do a speech, uh, do a presentation to other police about what it's like for families of people on this stuff called methamphetamine. And they were just getting a few of the, the detectives from the States were coming over and speaking to our police. So it was fairly new, um, although it wasn't in the underground, yeah. but the effects of it in the community were fairly new. So I think that's why I was able to get away with more than I think I should have, okay. to be honest, yeah. Oh, what did it take for you to to stop the drugs? Because I understand you're Even six years sober. Yeah. So what, what prompted you to... Um, my last OD. Okay. That did it for me, yeah. yeah. Um, a week after that, you know, I was a real stroke-looking victim. Couldn't... I, I was slurring. This side was sloped. And normally when I'd have my ODs, I'd sort of bounce out of bed. and Thanks, hospital. <laughs> uh, off I'd go again. This one kind of it scared me. It was a regular it occurrence, was it? It scared me. Um, the ODs? No, well, what was happening was that I'd try and give up and then when I'd get the urge, I'd take the same amount as what I was like three months ago. Okay. But I was fairly clean, so I was just ODing every time I'd start backing in. You know. And so that last time that you OD'd was... My children saw it and that was the first time. Like, you know, I wasn't that... Everyone's got this idea of druggies that we get smashed in front of our kids and all of that sort of thing. Everything was very private and like, you know just having her time in the room and that type of thing. And then I'd come out, cook dinner. They didn't know. Oh, well, they probably did. But, um, you know, it wasn't in their face, the yeah. taking as such. Um, but that one, yeah, they they went into the room and I was lying there and the whole purple lips, the froth, the, all of that. Yeah, it was a full-on OD. And that was enough for me. Yeah. yeah I got scared. It was It was our doctor who was kind of used to me showing up at the hospital. He said, no more. No more, Vanessa. Yeah. And I listened. Well, I, I couldn't imagine that would have been an easy process to go through to to get off them. No, and recovery is the loneliest thing. I, I had to leave everyone I knew. That was the only way I was going to be able to do it. Is this why you're in New Zealand still? Getting this clean? This is all in New Zealand, yeah. Okay, so you had to leave the area you were, you were mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. to isolate yourself mm -hmm. uh, from any temptation, go somewhere new. Where no one knew me, um, clean start, all of that sort of thing. And just before I left, because I, I knew I was going to leave, and I had this nursing degree <laughs> that I'd never used. So I was like... So during right. this whole time you'd had a nursing degree? I went and got a nursing degree. <laughs> I From the age of 15 when you walked out with mm -hmm. a, a couple of bucks? I went back. I went to the, um, the uni tech where I... Um, got my degree and said when was the first course starting and I kind of did that thing and it was nursing. So 
I did it. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. That's incredible. Mm. So I had this degree. I wanted to change. The kids were tired. So I rang up and found out how I got my return to nursing um, certificate. So I had to do three, three months of stuff. And then I got that back. And I could feel myself standing a bit taller. And I left where we're from and went to Hamilton, which is about seven, eight-hour drive, and applied the shit out of jobs. It's just like, I've worked with old people, you know, that's cool, I can do that. And I was really, at the job interviews, I know I was putting on this big act, it was so hard to try and be what I thought a nurse was. And I just wasn't getting the jobs. And then there was this mental health job. And they're saying, you know, the types of people that they're looking after. And it's like, you're talking about my friends. (laughs) And I went there and I just thought, stuff it, I'm going to be brutally honest. And I said, I've done these drugs, I've done this, and da-da-da-da-da. And um, I got the job. I got the job. I didn't have to pretend. I didn't have to pretend, not in mental health anyway. And that was the start of where I'm at now. How long were you in Hamilton for? I was there for probably about two and a half years, ended up being the team leader there, managed a schizophrenic residential home. Wow. Oh, it was fantastic, yeah. And you were doing all this being a single mother? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been challenging in itself. I think it got to the stage that if I kept myself busy, then I wouldn't think about that other stuff. So I put it all in a box and put it in the back of my head and I was just facing forward, and that's how I did that. So I'd never really addressed any of those issues, and I sort of haven't, but I think through my helping others and my training and my job, I'm kind of self-healing in a slow way. Time is a healer. What an incredible way to be able to turn it around and and use that. I mean, did you ever think, obviously you didn't, but you'd you'd be doing... Two and a half years, you were, I mean, team leader. Yeah, I know. It was so Mental cool. health. Yeah, that was awesome. And then I I wanted more. <laughs> Always wanting more, this girl. Yeah. And, um, and the home that I was working in, the residential service, was very much for Māori men. That got me, obviously, into Indigenous mental health. And I wanted to come to Australia. My main mission was I wanted to see how Indigenous here in Australia were coping with mental health compared to us and um, packed us up and said come on kids one more one more adventure I actually got the job from New Zealand I applied online and the company that I'm with now primary community care um, they hired me online and come on kids let's go at this stage how many of the six kids were with you um, the three older ones were in their own place okay and I had the three babies okay so yeah. the three babies came with you yep And was it hard at that point to, I mean, they would have been used to it, but Mm. to move them again? Not really, because we were used to it. And and I think the way I kind of manipulated them, everything was an adventure. (laughs) You You sold it. (laughs) Yeah, I sold it good. (laughs) You get to go on a plane. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) Like, you know, Australia. Um, So, no, they were good with it. They're good with change. They can cope with change better than any kid I know. I bet. They just roll with it. So when did you come to Australia then? Uh, 2018. 2018? Yep, November. Wow, so not even just uh, two and a bit years ago. Yeah. It's incredible. Yep. And so tell us about what's happened since you arrived in Australia. 
Oh my gosh, so much. So I'm working case management now with complex mental health clients and the kids are all settled, love love it here. And but then again, I'm starting to see a pattern. I wanted more. <laughs> and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, man. So I started studying and I, I wanted to be, I've always wanted to be a psychiatrist, always, but then I kept going, no, I'm too old now. And I put that off, so I thought I'll be a credentialed mental health nurse. When I was in New Zealand, I did a postgraduate paper on addictions and um, counselling because I thought that's where I can, you know, I know how everyone feels, I can do that. It was too triggering. I could not do it, you know. People assume that if you live that life, you're going to be good at helping others. Nah, bugger that. I wasn't very good at it. Even sitting in the lectures, lectures in New Zealand, and I was like, all I could think of was, shit, I want to score. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. But I passed that. So I, with that and the paper I'm doing now, I can now, when I finish two more papers, um, then I'll be able to apply for my accreditation and be a credentialed mental health nurse. I mean, firstly, congratulations on, on getting to where you are. Thank you. And it's, it's super exciting to the, the path that you're going on now. Yeah. And the new life that you've created for yourself mm. and your family. Mm. What is the lived experience part? How is that helping you in in the sector to work in it? Is it are you finding it's an advantage? Oh, most definitely. I, I don't think I'd out, be able to get the outcomes I do without having it. There's there's one thing you, you hear. I hear a lot of my clients saying, "Oh, you're not like those other ones who have just come straight out of college." And and I'm always like, you know, sticking up for my colleagues. <laughs> hey, we all just came just out of college, but. There's just that knowing, sometimes without even speaking. Yeah, you mentioned that. Getting that rapport. And it's, see, it's so hard to find the words for it, Sam, but there's a knowing people who have been through the same as you. And that's what gets me by. You know, I can be with someone for 20 minutes all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, yeah, I've actually got some drugs in my pocket now. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, too much. Hey, <laughs> disclosing too much. Um, but it's that instant, I trust you because you've done it. Yeah. You know, and it's not like I run in there and go, hey, I'm Vanessa, I'm the ex-junkie. But you don't have to. No. You don't have to. It's in our body language. It's in our approach, our patience. You know, I find a lot of clinicians I've seen kind of go rushing in to save the day. Just stop and listen. Stop and listen, man, and read between the lines, and that's where all your answers are. Yeah. Mm. It's it's great to see lived experience, living experience mm. of mental health, having having their voice mm. at the table when things are about them, mm. and the importance of the lived experience peer workers coming through. Tell us about the, way, the value that you see in that. In peer support, I think it's the only way to go moving forward. Mm. Absolutely. The, the lack of trust with the services, not that they've done anything, but on the dark side, the, lived, the people who are living this at the moment, they're coming down on so hard. They're getting come down on so hard with the law, with the everything. And so they should, that it's pushing them away from services. They don't trust anyone. Everyone is out to either take the children. Um, you know, the paranoia is huge. Uh, but with mothers, it's more about taking the children. Yeah. And mm. so when you can relate to somebody and go, well, that's not necessarily where we're coming at, you know. That's down the track if we keep this up and just pull people back and, and, and earn that trust. And I see that it comes 
easier for people with lived experience. But unfortunately, those people with lived experience won't often get into those jobs. You know, a lot have either come out of their experience with, you know, they've been to jail, so they've got records. Um, the confidence is so low, even though they're not doing drugs anymore. But there's what what you come out of that experience with is an immense feeling of guilt because of the skullduggery things that we had to do to survive on that time. Low confidence and the isolation. And those were the main things that kind of kept me in plateau for such a long time until like, boom, I don't give a shit anymore. And so we've got all these people out there with this fantastic lived experience. The stories are amazing. You know, I wouldn't change a thing, Sam. Mm. I've got stories to tell my great-great-grandchildren. They won't believe me. It's going to be awesome. But <laughs> there's people out there with all of that and they can't share it. They can't um, help mm. others. And I know that my final healing in this journey is helping others. Do you find the more that you that you do help others and either share your story or you just by looking at people, they know, but... Do you find that's part of healing with you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the next phase. Yeah. I've done as much as I can for me, and that's the next part that I'm on, is helping others. And a lot of my practice, you know, I'll refer some people, some of my clients, to like the first aid mental health, because it's like I plant that seed, like you'd be great with people who are going through what you're going through now. And so, and you see people light up. Yep. Because they, they're kind, we're kind, you know. Addicts are not all gangsters and apparent, you know. Yeah. Sadly, that's the rep that they have. You know, I, I talk to them about the mental health first aid. That's my favourite. Yeah. And so I've had a few of them do that. And if they go forward with that, excellent. If they don't, that seed is planted. I know it is. Yeah, it gives, it gives them options to use their experience yeah. for a positive change. Yeah, yeah. And they don't have to feel bad with it. No. You don't have to feel bad. You don't have it's to pretend okay. you're someone else. Yeah, yeah. Just like going for that interview way back when, I just bloody had it. I couldn't act like a nurse. <laughs> and I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just when it's authentic, mm. then people feel that. People yeah. feel that. And you don't have to hold on to that guilt and all of that sort of thing. So I do that with my clients all the time. Just let go of that. When you think back to when you were in, in the thick of it with mm -hmm. what you were going through in New Zealand, do you think that there would have been, had you have had peer support or someone, do you think you would have been open to that or do you think some of the approaches now could have been something that maybe dragged you out of it early? I, I think that within our own network, because we build a culture within our culture, so um, a lot of us addicts that, you know, our my group, um, I was always the youngest, so a lot of the older ones would go, you know, Ness, this ends two ways, you're going to die or you're going to outgrow it. And so we have our own sort of peer support within our culture, mm -hmm. but sadly they have their own addictions too, and a lot of them have passed away. So that was another, you know, reason for me moving on too. My, my friends were all dropping off like flies. Yeah. yeah, there's not many of them left. Yeah. So for the past sort of five-ish years, I've been really serious about writing a mental health program and it's based around lived experience, clinicians. So, yeah, of course it started 
from my experience, where did I fall through the gaps? Who could have stopped me? Who couldn't have stopped me? Who tried to stop me and it didn't work? What did they do wrong? All of this, you know. So um, you analysed your whole experience? My whole life. <laughs> my whole life. Wow. Um, and then the job that I did in Hamilton, it was like, okay, why is it so easy for me to talk to these guys? Because I'd see someone going to de-escalate somebody who was having a, a psychotic experience and I could still see them, you know, just amping up and, oh, God, I've got this knife and I'm going to hurt you and da, da da But then for some reason it was, like, kind of relatively easy for me to go, hey, bro, come on, man, it's me, you know, and we just start talking like this. Put it down, kick it over there. Come on, let's go and talk. Do you want to smoke? I know, worst thing to do. And I felt comfortable in that space, obviously, because of my experiences. Yeah. So writing all of these things down and over-analyzing it, it's ever-evolving and now I'm at the stage of um, applying for funding in New Zealand to start a program around that, around supporting others with lived experience. But what I want is those people with lived experience, I want to help them with their training. So it's a cycle. So yeah. you train them up with the program? Train them up. Stick with me for a year, kiddo. Um, you're going to leave with your certificate yes. and, some, and a year's experience. And oh. then next... And just churn them through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so that way, at the end of the year, mm. they then are in a position where they can go and they carry can on. Go and get work, and they've had yeah. a taste, you know. Yeah. They've had a taste of it, and they've built that confidence. That's all it took for me. Getting that return to nursing certificate mm. changed everything. Yeah. Yeah, I was worthy, and I want you know my brothers and sisters who are struggling to know that they're worthy. Just put all that stuff, put it in that box for now. Uh, you know, and start going through the motions. And so, yeah, I'm applying for funding wow. and things and hoping to be home next year. In New Zealand? So, yeah. So, to so go home, to go back to my hometown and help my people. Wow. Mm. So you moved the kids back to New Zealand? Yeah, they're already ready for it. Okay, They know, cool. I've started sucking up already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you head back and hopefully f um, head the program up and implement yeah. the program back home? Yeah, there's a lot of interest. Well, that's great. Yeah. You said before that you came to Australia to learn yeah. uh, about what they were doing on the Indigenous well-being. Mm. Ha yeah. Have you learnt a, a enough, a lot? Have you? Uh, what's good it question. Been like? Good question, because I didn't learn a lot. Um, it, it just, you know, and, and such is life, it's forever evolving and changing. And just when I'm heading from A to B because I want this, no, darling, there's another lesson in there for you. I think the ironic thing was that it took me to come to Australia to truly ground myself. And being of Māori descent, you'd think that we could do that on our own land, at home, you know, all our history. I couldn't do it at home. I think I needed to leave to realise what was there Mm. And Australia has helped me so much uh, with that. And the people here that I work with, my colleagues are just, they're so accepting. And, you know, I was a little bit sussed of them. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, look at these guys and, you know, they're pretending and yeah, they yeah. don't get me. I'm too cool. All of this sort of thing. They said, you're not fooling anyone, Vanessa. We like you just how you are. And they gave me that confidence that I feel as though I can go back and help more now. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. I didn't see that one coming. It just seems so fitting that you can now, you know, go back and be back where your people are and, and to be able to provide that service. Go back and to that the beginning. Gift. Yeah. Mm. Something you're looking forward to? 
yeah, it's going to be hard work, but I'm not scared of hard work. No. Yeah, I think I've done my hard yards. <laughs> Certainly in the blood. Yeah. Uh, and your mother? Yeah, she's excited. She wanted us home years ago. No, she she wants us living right there next to her. Um, love you, Mum, but probably not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we won't be far from Mum. Yeah. Uh, so the last two papers are due this year. Yes, I'll be finished, and each paper is seven weeks each. Okay. Um, it's pretty full on. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty full on, especially working full time, doing the kids, and I've got four grandchildren under five. Um, wow. Yeah, she's like a mother. She's a brooder. Vanessa, as we as we round out the conversation, yeah. the value that you are, are providing uh-huh. to the people that you're serving uh, and working with uh, is truly amazing. And the, the horrific things that you've had to endure uh-huh. as a Maori woman or any, for any woman to go through that stuff is... Uh-huh. Uh, you just it's just unbelievable to some extent but mm. what you're now doing as a result of that and the way you've been able to pull yourself out of that experience to go on the journey you're currently on mm. is something that is truly inspirational truly and i mean we're just grateful that we you know mm. you're able to come in and, and have this conversation with me mm. today but equally nothing drives us more mm. to be able to help people out like yourself mm. um with a small uh, financial um, award that we can give you but I mean it's just really we are so proud to have you as someone that we we're able to help out to finish their studies. Thank you so much um, you know and and being chosen for the award you could have heard the screams in my house <laughs> we were just like because nothing's ever easy mm. and it's you know we just always seem to have to, it's like third or fourth try at something we get it and we got this award. It was just, it, it lifted our family. We are so grateful. We are so grateful. Well, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, awesome. it's an absolute pleasure. And at the end of the day, yeah. this is why we do what we do. And whilst there were 36 applications and we yeah. only had enough for two, reading all those applications has prompted us to go out and say, well, we need to do more. We need to do better and we need more help. And so that's something that we're going through at the moment to be able to provide more people than just two people a year with such an opportunity. But we are super grateful for you to come in and share your story with our listeners and uh, what an incredible woman. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Vanessa. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.